Forums program of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. This program brings together scholars, specialist commentators, and the general public to explore historical perspectives on contemporary issues. The following forum on vaccines is the first in our ongoing Trust in Science series. The event was recorded live in front of an audience at the American Philosophical Society, but the discussion continues online. We invite you to join us and add your voice to the conversation. Visit chstm.org vaccines, where you may view video from the event, add comments or questions in the discussion forum, read additional expert commentary, and access relevant resources. I am very, very glad to welcome you this evening to this evening's discussion of trust in science on behalf of three organizations. Uh, the first about which I'll say a little bit shortly is the one of which I am executive director. My name is Bob Hauser, uh, and that's the American Philosophical Society. Uh, but this is a tripartite evening. Uh, we are also here uh, as guests of the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, which is kind of a sister organization to the American Philosophical Society, and also the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So with that, I will introduce our next speaker, um, uh, Babakish Rafi, who is a physicist and historian of science and is the founding director and current director of the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and he will introduce our other speakers. So thank you. Thank you, Bob. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, so tonight's event is the Consortium's first annual Albert M. Greenfield Forum in the history of science, technology, and medicine. We're, a great feel, we're grateful to the Albert M. Greenfield Foundation for supporting events like this, for supporting our work. And I also want to thank the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for supporting events like this one. The event is called Trust in Science. It's the first of three events that will focus on the issues of trust in science. This one focuses on vaccines. The other two will focus on evolution and climate science. Um, the, this series is inspired by the Academy of Arts and Sciences report, Perceptions on Science in America, and our first speaker will tell you something about that report. Uh, without spoiling the talks tonight, I want to point out the title is Trust in Science, not Truth in Science. Truth is infinitely complicated and hard and contentious and expensive, and trust is just as complicated, at least, and the relationship between truth and trust is yet another complication. We might like it to be the case that truth earns you trust. It is not so. It has never been so. And so we'll explore that complexity tonight and in the series of events that, that we'll be hosting. Our first speaker is Erica Kimmerling. She is the Hellman Fellow in Science and Technology Policy at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences where she helped staff the Public Face of Science Initiative at the Academy and led the drafting of this report about which we'll be speaking. Our second speaker is Elena Konis. She is Associate Professor at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Graduate School of Journalism, the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society, and the Program in Media Studies. In addition, she is 
at the University of California, San Francisco in the Department of Anthropology, History, and Medicine. She's author of the award-winning book, Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization, which came out in 2015 from University of Chicago Press. Our third speaker will be Jeffrey Baker. He's professor of pediatrics and history and directs the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine at Duke University. He's a general pediatrician, pediatrician with a focus on children with autism spectrum disorders and a medical historian whose work has addressed vaccine controversies, autism, and the history of pediatrics. And you met Bob Hauser a second ago. He was also involved in the production with the report Perceptions of Science at the Academy, and he'll join the discussion afterwards. So thank you for joining us. Um, let me ask Erica Kimmerling to begin us off. Um, so I am, as I was introduced, Erica Kimmerling from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I am here to speak about our report, Perceptions of Science in America, and I'd first like to thank APS uh, and the consortium for hosting this series, uh, this public event series uh, inspired by our report. The Public Face of Science project began about three years ago trying to understand this complex and evolving relationship between science, scientists, and society. Um, before I get into that, I wanted to give a little bit of background on who the American Academy of Arts and Sciences is. We are an honorary society with over 5,000 members. We were founded in 1780 by scholar patriots, including John Adams, apparently after APS was founded. I will also, as a side note, note we had a Super Bowl bet with APS last year that we, we did lose, and we only recently got our copy of Benjamin Franklin's uh, journals back from APS that we had lent to them. So. <laughs> Props. Um, um, and in addition to being an honorary society, we, um, we are an independent research center, and it's really driven by our members. So uh, as part of the work that we do for the Public Face of Science Project, there is an outstanding steering committee that I am honored to be able to represent their work here today with you. Uh, we are interdisciplinary. We have everyone in the academy. It's the arts and sciences, so we have everyone from John Legend to Sonia Sotomayor to the top scientists in the world. So we have a uh, very interdisciplinary membership. And kind of just cutting to it, Perceptions of Science in America was a report we released and we, we compiled data that existed, uh, existing data on the attitudes towards science. It turns out there's a lot of information out there, but not all in one place. And when you put it all in one place, you start to notice these trends. So the first thing that we noticed was that confidence in the scientific community and scientific leaders has actually remained relatively stable over the last 30 years. And a lot of, um, a lot of you may actually be familiar with the framing of this question. Uh, the National Opinion Research Center out of the, outside of the University of Chicago does this general social survey, and they about ask about trust in institutions. This is the one that asks about Congress, the media, banks, and financial institutions, and they also ask about the scientific community. And what you find is that confidence in scientists, that's that orange line, has actually kind of stayed stable for the last 30 years, whereas every, well, a lot of the other institutions, excluding the military, have declined. When you combine the kind of great deal of confidence with only some, that number goes up to 90%, pretty much in line with the military, whereas every other institution is at the 40% level. And this data is important because it does show that, in general, trust has not, just high-level trust has not changed. 
I will add in the caveat that we don't know what people are thinking of when they're asked this question. We don't know what science means in someone's mind. So there are market-based research surveys that have actually asked this question and it's in the report. And people were asked, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the phrase scientific research? 50% of people did not have a response. So as, although this data gives us confidence and we see it's been stable, I will say we don't really, I would not read too much into it. You can ask the question a different way though. And this is data from the science and engineering indicators released by the Ni National Science Board out of, outside of the National Science Foundation. It is an extensive report on everything about funding in science and publications. If you have not looked at it and are interested in the issue, I highly recommend it as a resource. But they ask, do the benefits of science outweigh the harms? And 72% of Americans say yes to that question. It's an overwhelming majority that respond that scientific research is beneficial. So that's the positive, that's the top line. When you go a level deeper, when you look at confidence in science and you break it out by demographic characteristics and other factors, you start to see these areas of concern arise. And yes, this is a lot of data on one slide and I try not to overdo it on data sometimes, but this is that same question, that one with the longitudinal data broken out by a whole bunch of different factors. And if you look for yourself, you can kind of see these areas of weakness and distinction. Um, women have a little bit more skepticism than men, uh, depending on your region, depending on your educational attainment. I will also note that the kind of the categories for race are not uh, ideal. We only have data from people who self-identified as black or white on the survey, so we're lacking a full picture of the racial breakdown, but you do see that there's a big difference. And there have been studies into this asking why. And when you actually factor in other things, uh, such as an in inequitable educational experience, culture, religion, a lot of that difference tends to close, um, but doesn't account for all of it. And there are, uh, there's a history of uh, scientific racism and that is suspected to be contributing to some of that difference. I will say that demographic factors are, are not, or they don't say the underlying context and values, so I would not kind of bin people into these subgroups when looking at these data. They're just a useful um, way to kind of start looking at the differences and looking at areas of skepticism. One of the most kind of, um, uh, kind of popping things that stand out to me when you look at the data is that when you ask that same question about the benefits of scientific research, that was 72% of overall Americans said it was beneficial. For people with less than a high school degree, it's only 52%. And that's compared to 84%, 94% of people with a bachelor's degree or a graduate and professional degree. I would say going back to this idea of truth, trust, knowledge, this is not data that supports this kind of idea that the more science you have, the more you know, the more likely you are you to trust science. This is just showing a difference in educational attainment and your trust in scientific research. So those were the kind of the two top layers. It gets even more nuanced when you break it out by scientific issue and you discover that there's really no kind of single anti-science population. And there's a lot of this dialogue around people are anti-science. Well, first of all, the general trend in science hasn't changed, but when you look at it based on specific scientific issues, it's just not one group and it depends on the issue you're talking about. And when I call things controversial science, you should also kind of remember that it's it's only a small fraction of the science that exists. It's a very small minority, and it's the issues that you know very well. 
climate change, vaccines, GMOs, evolution is not up here, but that also uh, falls into that category. And what's interesting is that for uh, kind of the belief in the scientific consensus so that vaccines are safe, in, for younger people, they are less likely to believe in the scientific consensus. However, on the idea that Earth is warming due to human activity, younger people are actually more likely to believe in the scientific consensus. So it's a lot more nuanced than we kind of originally would think without looking at the, the layers within the data. Um, because this night is about vaccines, there is one spread in the report on vaccines that I wanted to highlight for you tonight. And again, this goes into, it depends on how you ask the question. Because younger Americans are actually not less likely to trust in the ability of a scientist to provide full and accurate information on vaccines. That was about the same when Pew surveyed it. And I will once again point you to a great resource if you're interested in the data on this sub subject about um, in 2016, the survey was conducted, the report was released, released in 2017. The Pew Research Center did a um, really extensive analysis of attitudes, current attitudes towards vaccines, and that report is completely available online and cited within the teal book that you have, uh, that you were given when you walked in. So when you look at then at whether or not uh, people agree with the idea that the MMR vaccine, well, that medical scientists agree that the MMR vaccine is safe, 18 to 29 year olds are more skeptical of the consensus around vaccines. And I'm particularly excited about tonight because what this data does show you is that the, 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 the national survey data is not enough. There's uh, context there, there's nuance there, and actually historical perspective really sheds light on all the things that go into building trust. Um, so that that's really the the, quick overview of the report. I'm happy to answer any questions about any of the data that you see or our process, what we chose to highlight and our other findings. I will also like to point you towards, we have another forthcoming report. It's on encountering science in America and it's all the different people, ways people experience science, kind of all in one place as a landscape report as well. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, Erica. Thank you all for being here. And thanks uh, especially to the consortium and APS for hosting this discussion and for including a historian in the mix. I'm delighted to be here and so delighted that so many of you turned out for this conversation tonight, given the weather and also a special thanks to the familiar faces in the audience. As we've already heard, some say that we're living, and this is um, a slide taken from the report that Erica just walked us through, some say we're living in a moment of crisis because the public has lost its faith and trust in science. Public doubts about human-caused climate change, as we've heard, evolution, GMOs, and of course vaccines, are usually cited as evidence of this trend. My aim tonight is to set, set this reported distrust in vaccines, in particular, in historical perspective, to try to shed some light on why this is one area in which public faith in science seems to be flagging. In order to answer this question, why so much distrust in vaccines, I want to start by cleaving the history of vaccination, the 200-year history of vaccination, into two periods. The first of these periods is the first 150 years of vaccination from the development of our first vaccine against smallpox in the 1790s up to the middle of the 20th century. 
And the second period is the subsequent 60 plus years from the 1960s to the present. And here's why I'm drawing this line between these two periods. This vaccination record for a child born in New York City in 1948 shows the vaccines that she received as a matter of routine pediatric care at that time, a vaccine against smallpox, another for diphtheria, and another to protect her from whooping cough or pertussis. In other words, 150 years of vaccination had passed, and after that, American children who saw the doctor were getting three vaccines. Jump ahead with me for a moment to consider a hypothetical child born in the US today. Their recommended vaccines are laid out in a lengthy schedule from the Centers for Disease Control from birth through their entry into adulthood, and they include 14 more vaccinations than the average child would have received ideally in the 1940s, when presumably some of you in this room were probably born. In other words, children born in the U.S. today have added to the list protection against polio, tetanus, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B, Hib, flu, varicella, hepatitis A, pneumococcal infections, meningococcal infections, rotavirus, and HPV. According to recent data from the Centers for Disease Control, well over 90% of children in kindergarten today are in fact protected with a good number of these vaccines. And this list is not comprehensive, but it is recent. Now, cleaving the history of vaccination in two and looking at where we are today, for me, helps us see some of the unique characteristics of the present. And I want to sum it up like this. Today, we vaccinate more American children against a longer list of diseases, more varied in type than we ever have in history. In other words, our current use of vaccination is historically unprecedented. And to me, that raises a question slightly different from the one we're here to consider tonight. Not why don't people trust vaccines, but why do they? And the reason I ask this question is because the history of vaccination prompts me to pose it this way. That's because distrust of vaccines has been with us for so long, from the very, very start of vaccination, in fact. The first vaccine against smallpox was made, as some of you likely know, with matter taken from the pustules of a cow infected with cowpox. As this 1802 caricature illustrates, the procedure provoked all kinds of fears of, of potential health risks associated with the procedure. Not literally maybe the sprouting and elimination of many cows from one's body, but certainly tumors, loss of bodily integrity, and mystery ailments that could never be known. But these feared vaccine risks did not coalesce into anti-vaccinationism, that is, organized social movements opposed to vaccination, until the advent in Western Europe of compulsory vaccination, that is, laws or edicts that mandated the vaccination of certain members of the public. To some members of the public, such edicts were an affront to God's will. To others, they were in direct conflict with individual liberty. And so we can look at opposition to the first hundred years of vaccination as encompassed by three types of objections, those to the risks posed by vac vaccines, those based in religious beliefs, and those based in ideological beliefs about inherent rights. 
Now here in the US, we were slower to see both compulsion and anti-vaccinationism at the scale that they appeared in Europe. But some historians credit the British social, social reformer pictured here, William Tebb, for bringing anti-vaccine or anti-vaccinationist ideas to the US in the late 19th century. Tebb was one of many anti-vaccinationists who aligned his anti-vaccine views with his beliefs in the abolition of slavery, the prevention of cruelty to animals, and the prevention of cruelty to children. He also helpfully summed up the anti-vaccinationist principles agreed upon by those who attended the first and second international anti-vaccination congresses, which were held in France in the 1880s. And the principles that these anti-vaccinationists agreed upon were these, that smallpox was no longer a serious disease, that vaccination itself carried risks, that it could transmit, and they were not wrong about this, syphilis in particular, in particular when vaccination was conducted not from cow to person, but from person to person. And they also believed that it predisposed some people to disease and that there were other safer ways of preventing smallpox, like sanitation, as Ted outlined in this report. Anti-vaccination here in the US became a lasting feature from the 1870s on, associated most typically with practitioners of medical sects, non-orthodox sectarian medicine practices like chiropractic medicine, also with certain religious groups, with libertarians, and with others. But some of the strongest proponents of anti-vaccinationism were those who felt directly harmed by vaccination and who believed that the rights guaranteed by our Constitution should have protected them from that harm. For Laura Little, pictured here on the left, that harm came to her son following his diphtheria immunization, which, she felt, triggered a series of illnesses from which he never recovered. She spent the years after his death compiling and publicizing cases of harm caused by vaccination in children. For Henning Jacobson, the pastor pictured here on the right, his conversion moment came when Cambridge vaccinators arrived at his door demanding he take the small, smallpox vaccine or pay a fine. He refused both and was named in a case that made it to the Supreme Court, whose 1905 decision upholds compulsory immunization to this day. But there was relatively little talk of compulsion here in the US in the early decades of the 20th century, despite that Supreme Court decision. Smallpox in the ensuing decades gradually faded. Diphtheria immunization was left to the discretion of doctors. There was even little talk of compulsion when the first polio vaccine was developed in 1954, because the vaccine was so desperately anticipated by a public so deeply afraid of the disease that they lined up, like these folks here, for hours to receive it for themselves or for their children. They simply wanted the vaccine. No force of law was necessary. Now, I want to pause here in the 1950s because the 1950s are a hinge point between the two periods of vaccination I mentioned earlier. The first 150 years were characterized, to kind of grossly generalize, by few vaccines, sporadic and reactive use of compulsion, and a good measure of unresolved ambivalence about some of the existing vaccines and how they should be used. The 1950s enthusiasm for polio vaccination changed much of this. Our national experience with polio set our expectations for vaccination going into the 1960s. 
We expected vaccines to become available as we needed them. We expected children to get them to protect the public. We expected these vaccines to completely eliminate disease once they were at hand. We also welcomed federal leadership in the area of vaccination, no longer wanting to leave it entirely up to cities and states to determine who should get vaccinated against what and when and with their own resources. The 60s got off to a pretty triumphant start with respect to vaccination. Within the course of a mere decade, American scientists developed six new vaccines. Uh, you'd see from the Sabin oral polio vaccine all the way through to the rubella vaccine. This was a rate of vaccine development that had previously been unimaginable and that built on the science that made the polio vaccine possible. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy signed into law the Vaccination Assistance Act, providing states for the first time with federal funds to help guarantee wide, ongoing use of vaccines then at hand, smallpox, polio, diphtheria, and tetanus vaccines, with measles being added to the list when the act was renewed by Lyndon Johnson in 1965. The idea behind Kennedy's act, though, was not just to encourage the use of vaccines, but to encourage their use before they were needed, before outbreaks manifested. It was also, the idea was, to grant access to the fruits of American biomedicine to every citizen. The idea was that the products of American research were the province of every American and needed to be seen as such to ensure a great future for a great country. In the meantime, our CDC, then known as the Communicable Disease Center, began issuing consolidated immunization recommendations for the entire country. It also began offering training to states, sending epidemiologists to states across the US to train their immunization officers. And it launched its own national vaccination campaigns, primarily in an effort to prompt the public to use new vaccines, like the measles vaccine, as eagerly and readily as they had used the polio vaccine. This was a big hurdle, it turned out. Namely, the fact that these new vaccines, particularly the vaccines against measles, mumps, and rubella, were considered mild at the time. And the public and many physicians didn't necessarily see them as serious enough to warrant prevention via mass vaccination. In response, gradually, the agency and vaccine makers worked to recast these diseases framing them as serious infections with grave consequences preventable at any cost. Within a decade of mumps vaccination, for one, all lighthearted depictions of the disease, such as this one from a New York Department of Health uh, brochure in the 1950s, such depictions would disappear and they'd be replaced with images of a disease that caused, caused deafness, infertility, and sometimes even death. Vaccination proponents did not solely rely on reframing diseases, of course, to encourage uptake of vaccination. Studies in the 1960s had shown that school laws had worked to keep epidemics at bay, and CDC epidemiologists championed such laws as, as a way to ensure uptake of the new generation of vaccines. Gradually, cities like Los Angeles picked it here, and states began to comply, not just requiring vaccines for school, but enforcing those requirements as necessary. But the push for school vaccination laws also got a, bo a boost from the Carter administration in the late 1970s. The Carter administration's childhood immunization initiative asked states to modernize and enforce their vaccine laws across the board. 
the initiative was launched as a great equalizer following in the tradition of the Kennedy Act. It was launched as a way to ensure access to vaccines for all, but it was also importantly launched as a way to curb runaway healthcare costs. The thinking was that preventing costly diseases and the permanent disabilities that they sometimes left in their wake was a way to curb the skyrocketing costs of health and medical care that the country was seeing in the 1970s. Either way, by the time Carter left office, nearly every state had laws requiring the available and recommended vaccines for school, and rates of childhood immunization were higher than they had ever been before. But there's one more thing that I want to say about these boom years of vaccination in the 1960s and 70s. In these decades, vaccinating your children was posited as a great gift to your children as an important step in keeping your own children healthy and thriving. It was also positioned as a luxury of modern living that every American had a right to. This language was embodied in Kennedy's announcement of the 1962 Act, and it resonated at a time when American children were becoming more valuable, their families literally investing more in their upbringing and their future success than ever before. But as I said, this was the 60s and 70s, not exactly quiet decades, decades of great social change. So that even as vaccination was expanding, social and cultural shifts in the country were complicating the process. The women's movement took off and feminists argued, among many other things, that the widely prescribed drugs they were taking had serious side effects long known to doctors but kept hidden from women by a paternalistic profession. Feminists argued that it was time for women to know and take care of their own bodies, and in time, this ethos would be projected onto the bodies of their children, too. This was also the dawn of the environmental movement, with environmentalists advocating for cleaner water, air, cities, and towns, and some arguing for a back-to-the-land movement entirely, seeing nature as beneficent and all-providing modern foods and modern medicines inherently suspect and unnecessary. These movements didn't oppose vaccination directly, but they began to popularize a set of ideas and rhetoric that began to be applied to vaccines, encouraging people to ask whether vaccines were necessary, whether they were safe, and whether those who made and promoted them could be trusted to do no harm. This was also the era of social movements that critiqued long-standing institutions of authority, and the anti-medicalization movement, for one, did take on vaccines directly at times, as the books of the popular physician Robert Mendelssohn reveal. To Mendelssohn, the idea that measles, mumps, and rubella were serious diseases was preposterous, and he encouraged patients to question their doctors and counsel as a matter of course. This all means that skepticism about vaccines was long brewing when an NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C. aired an hour-long investigation on the risks of pertussis vaccination in 1982. The title of the report, as you can see here, was DPT Vaccine Roulette. The premise of the report was that doctors had long known about the pertussis component of the DPT vaccine carrying risks including seizure and, on occasion, death. Once the broadcast aired, it catalyzed the formation of an organized movement critical of vaccines. They called themselves, at first, Dissatisfied Parents Together, DPT, and they didn't ask for less government, as the vaccine critics of a century ago had. In fact, they asked for more, 
They wanted the government to do more to ensure that vaccine risks were disclosed, that vaccines themselves were kept as safe as possible, and that the families of those harmed by vaccines were compensated for their loss. These self-described vaccine safety advocates, who we've now rebranded as anti-vaccinationists, did achieve all of these aims by the end of the 1980s. In the decade that followed, we once again saw an expansion of federal leadership, paving the way for even greater access to vaccines for children. When Clinton signed legislation creating a program called Vaccines for Children. For the Clinton administration, access to vaccines was a fundamental right, one that government should guarantee. Placing government in the position of providing vaccines and proving that government could provide cost-effective health care to the public was another objective of the program. In the wake of the program's creation, the schedule of recommended childhood vaccines grew once again, and yet new laws and new regulations requiring those vaccines for school children were added to state books. But once again, vaccine objections were already circulating, and vaccine fears were already brewing. Parents were questioning the necessity of a chickenpox vaccine introduced in the 90s, saying that they themselves had had the disease as children. They were questioning the logic of a birth dose of the hepatitis B vaccine, recalling that they had grown up hearing of this as a disease of sex workers and injection drug users. Few of them at first questioned the new rotavirus vaccine, but became skeptical when it was recalled for posing a high risk of a serious bowel disorder. More important than these vaccine-specific fears, however, were the social anxieties that were mapped onto vaccines in the 90s, fears about mercury in our air, food, and drugs that seemed realized when the FDA recommended the rem removal of thimerosal from vaccines in 1988. Also fears that mammoth and growing drug companies were putting profits ahead of people, which seemed realized when that rotavirus was recalled from the public. And also fears that the government simply wasn't being truthful to the American public as these protesters from the 2007 Green R Vaccines March on Washington made clear. This is just a short list of some of these fears. I can refer you to a much longer list in chapter eight of my book. But <laughs> this short list brings me to the key points that the long history of vaccination helps illustrate. And these key points are two. First, that trust in vaccination goes hand in hand with trust in government in this country. And second, given the myriad sources of distrust circulating for more than 200 years, the level, the unprecedented level of trust we have in vaccination today is nothing take, to take for granted. And here's another illustration of it from a recent CDC report that shows upwards of 90% acceptance of the highly controversial MMR vaccine among kindergartners last year. Now, this is not to say that the distrust that we do have is worthy of dismissal, but it is worthy, in my mind, of recharacterization. What we have, I believe, is not a lack of trust in vaccines, but rather a symptom of distrust in government and industry. That distrust has been with us since compulsory vaccination has been with us, and to my mind, it's impossible for us to expect to rely on the force of law to ensure a vaccinated public without encountering some resistance from some fraction of our public. Thank you.
So I'm Jeff Baker, uh, <clears throat> and I would also, Jeff Baker referring, uh, recovering from a cold. Um, that darn flu vaccine didn't do much good. Um, <laughs> uh, Jeff Baker recovering from a cold. Really good to, to see all of you here. Thank you as well from the, for your invitation from the American Philosophical Association, Society as well as from the consortium. I'm going to just start with the, so in Madison, we've got to start with this disclosure stuff, which is a nice tie-in with uh, the theme that Elaine is bring, bringing up. So first of all, I have no financial conflict of interest. Uh, Eli Lilly actually did try to recruit me to be an expert witness about thimerosal. I turned it down because I knew that I'd have objects thrown at me for the rest of my life. Um, but here's kind of serious conflict of interest to think about. Uh, and I put this up for you to think about. I'm a practicing pediatrician. Now, I'd like to say, so I believe in vaccines, right? I, I believe very, very deeply in them. Um, I can say that that's because I've seen diseases like meningitis decline dramatically, even over my now gray hair lifespan. But some in the audience might well question, well, would people really be bringing their babies to my office every two months? They didn't have to get their shots. Don't I have a financial conflict of interest? Right? So just, I'm just going to put that out there to think about that. I think there is a sense that we pediatricians, we do kind of think of vaccines as the American flag, and I'll put that out as well. Um, so I'm just going to put that out. And here's the last thing for you to think about before you start throwing objects at me. Um, I, uh, my clinical fo I mean, I've been a general pediatrician for a long time at, at Duke with a practice that has a, a, a big mix of, of incomes. I'm very close to Chapel Hill and Carborough, if you know what that is. It's a little more like Elena's territory, California. So a lot of people do question vaccines. I take care of a lot of people with autism. Um, and that really gives me uh, a lot of contact with people who have been injured, or not, at least not served well by the medical establishment. So I like to think that I'm kind of a, a my conflict of interest is a messy, mixed-up brew. And you guys can judge how this works out. So what I wanted to do after uh, Elena and I had talked and I think our vision was she would give the big picture, which I think she's done very nicely. And I'm going to now try to focus a little bit more on some of the, 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 the bigger, the more specific stories of, 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 of some of the biggest vaccine con controversies since the, since the 70s and 80s. And I decided I'm just going to focus on two, uh, uh, which uh, in particular, I'm not going to really get into HPV, uh, the human papillomavirus, or smallpox. Um, we can talk about this later on. I'm going to try to look at these two particular controversies, how they play out in the UK and the US, which has been the focus of my research, which I think is kind of interesting and, and illustrates some interesting windows into culture. Um, I'm a historian too, so I, I, I got a PhD. <clears throat> and uh, so as an historian, I'm really taught uh, to not, to, to take, try to take my pediatrician hat off and to really immerse, you know, to judge the past in its own, you know, to try to understand the past. Not to just give a talk of telling stories of crazy, anti-vaccine craziness in the past and bash them. Um, and understanding the past is a, is a tricky thing. Do you recognize this picture? Inherit the wind, right? Uh, the Scopes, Scopes trial, right? The Scopes monkey trial. I like this story. You're going to do evolution later on. but. You know, this story that gets caricatured as a story of enlightened scientists versus stupid southern Tennessee fundamentalists. And I like to remind you that uh, Brian, oops, uh-oh, there we go, good. Which is my print, there we are. William Jennings Bryan, you know, he spent his, he's parodied here as the fundamentalist. He spent his life as a populist. Uh, 
something that stands up for the common man. Um, and, uh, you know, the Scopes' textbook on evolution had a chapter on eugenics, a chapter that was against the kind of people that Brian was defending. So that kind of story, I think, nuances how we think about history. Um, so I'm going to focus on these two controversies, the DTP vaccine controversy and the vaccine autism controversy. Kind of give you very stripped down histories of each one and try to make some reflections that on, on these bigger issues of science and <clears throat> um, on trust in science. Uh, it's interesting that the first of the controversies, the DTP, or really, really the pertussis vaccine controversy, part of the DTP, erupts in England. Because Elena has sketched, you know, the United States embraces a pretty aggressive policy in the 1970s of compulsory vaccination as a, as a part of getting into school, right? We're kind of a freedom-loving country. You might think that we would be the ones to, to, to launch, to attack the vaccine. In fact, it's England, which does not have strong compulsory vaccination laws. So what happened in England? Well, in 1973, a neurologist, John Wilson, presented 30 cases in a, in a case series uh, that he had gathered over oh, at least, I think, 12 years of children that he had believed had suffered permanent neurological damage because of the whooping cough or pertussis vaccine. That's one vaccine that was part of the three-part DTP vaccine, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis uh, vaccine. And it famous as kind of, I mean, it was, it was a fairly crude vaccine, one that was sort of ground up whole cell bacteria. And it clearly caused a lot of side effects, fevers, uh, seizures, and the like. Wilson was claiming something more, that he claimed this vaccine actually could cause permanent neurologic damage after seizures. When this paper came out, um, it uh, ignited, it became a sensation in the British press, but not just the press. The British medical profession was quite divided by this. I'd like to underline that not only did Wilson, but other, a number of other prominent phys British physicians uh, attack this vaccine and really say this is really needs to be taken, off the be taken off the shelf. Primary care in England is done by general practitioners. Half of them stopped recommending the vaccine amidst this publicity. So vaccine rates plummet um, 70, you know, 80 to 31 percent. And there is a series of whooping cough epidemics um, that happened in the late 70s. Um, in 1981, uh, the, the British government's trying to figure out how to respond to this. Basically, a large epidemiologic study is launched. These conclusions come out in 1981, led by a Glasgow epidemiologist, David Miller. It's called the National Childhood Encephalopathy Study. And this huge case control study basically tries to, of the entire, really most, most of the United, of England and Wales, <clears throat> sort of looks at the potential timing of the vac you know, vaccines and neurological Im imaging, uh, neurological imagery. And it did conclude that it found that in a small number of cases, injury could happen after the vaccine. It was very, very small, one in 100,000. But nonetheless, did, did argue there was a small actual causal effect, but quite a bit smaller than many people assumed. Right after that came out is when Leah Thompson, uh, an American journal, uh, journalist, TV producer, uh, in her documentary, DPT Vaccine Roulette, comes out. Um, and this is, I think, the main slide that both of our presentations have in common, because it's a very important moment in time. Uh, very uh, widely aired documentary 
Um, many in the pro-vaccine community sort of consider it single-mindedly to cause vaccine skepticism. I think that's way oversimplification, but it was important uh, as, as a catalyst for in, in the United States. Uh, and in particular, right after this comes out, um, as Elena has mentioned, an or, um, you know, a, a group of parents come together hearing this and form an organization, dissatisfied parents together. Um, that group actually goes on to uh, to promote uh, congressional hearings, which uh, over vaccine safety, which happened over the next three years. They are outraged at not just compulsion, but at why is this vaccine, which is kind of an old, dirty vaccine, I think it's fair to say, why is it still you know being given? Um, uh, in America, this is accompanied by a litigation crisis, and uh, so lots of lawsuits happen. The amount uh, in facing this, and you can imagine people are just bringing in all kinds of possible vaccine injuries into the courts. And the great question is, lots of strange things happen in infancy, um, present at the same time vaccines are being given. Are these really caused by vaccines or not? Surely there can be cases where they appear to be. Um, at this point, data is unclear, so a lot of losses happen. You can see just the figures, you know, by 1985, three billion uh, is being re requested by, by plaintiffs um, from pharmaceutical co companies. And the pharmaceutical companies then respond by pulling out. Um, vaccines have not really been one of their big money makers, and I am not a big pro-pharma person, but I don't think we should lump together vaccines with a lot of other things they do. Um, so six out of seven of the companies that are making the DTP stopped. Uh, by 85, there's just one company left. Um, and we, we start to get real vaccine shortages by that point. <clears throat> I'm doing this so incredibly fast, I'm sorry. Um, this whole period of controversy comes to an end through two kinds of resolutions, one in the UK, one in the United States. In, the, in Britain, um, after that big study that I described that came out in 81, the government uses that to say, that, okay, there's a causal relationship, but it's very small, and start to get some people to start doing the vaccine again. It's a very slow return. Um, the legal system there worked very differently than here, and I think sort of the, the more clear-cut denouement was in 1986 through a series of three court decisions. Now, in England, where as opposed to America, where you know, people can bring cases to individual courts, they set up just a small number of court cases to basically evaluate the big question, did vaccines cause permanent neurologic damage? DTP vaccine in particular, to be clear. And of those three cases, the key one, um, basically they try to find, people try to bring their most convincing cases of, of cause relationship. The cases themselves were when they went to court and people really started taking them apart, looking at medical records, the, 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 the antidotal, anecdotal cases didn't hold up as well as they appeared. But the courts went further and really just tried to go back to the, the bigger question, do vaccines cause, uh, is there evidence of DTP causing permanent neurologic damage? And the courts actually, uh, Justice Stuart Smith went back and went through the 1981 study and the cases, case by case. And I won't go into the detail, but basically the cases didn't hold up. Um, they, in the end, he found that the, the, the very small number of cases of permanent neurologic damage really could be thrown out um, as, as, just not, as just not possibly being linked to the vaccine. Um, later on analyses, I found other, basically found that SIDS 
has not been linked as, as a consequence of the vaccine. Other cases that did happen of seizures after that seemed to happen in children getting vaccines followed by neurologic damage may be attributed to things like Dravet syndrome. Anyway, the courts basically decided there's no causal connection. Um, and uh, England ended up still keeping the old DTP, the old whole cell DTP, and uh, moved on. United States, our response was to pass, and this was really following the lead of the of the of dissatisfied parents together and a lot of negotiations that are pretty complicated that I'm really not doing justice to in this time. But uh, it led to the National Vaccine Inj Injury Compensation Act, which sets up a program. Basically, it sort of solves the litigation crisis. Uh, it, it, it provides a different route for people who are victims of vaccine to get compensation without going to the courts. Um, there is a tension in this in this kind of program. Is its main program to help? Is its main purpose to help parents, um, or is it really only to assist parents with a definite, where an effect is clearly a consequence of vaccine? And that's going to be a, a tension that's going to come back later on. Um, I would argue that despite all these other huge issues in the background, this period of intense controversy on vaccines starts to settle down by the late 80s and early 90s until reflaring up again, even though the other factors that Elena is bringing up are, are still very much in the background. So kind of summarizing this first controversy, you know, in the UK, it's interesting, there's a very prominent role of distant scientist leaders. Um, I just mentioned Wilson, but there's, there, I could mention two or three others as well. It played a prominent role uh, questioning the vaccine. Doctors are quite divided in England. General practitioners, most primary care in England, clearly lost confidence in the vaccine. Vaccine rates fell, and there were actual epidemics. United States, pediatricians, so here's where you guys can try to decide where I am with this. Um, you know, dominate primary care in the United States, you'll continue to promote vaccine safety. They really stayed on board pretty much. There was no dramatic fall of vaccination rates. Uh, we also had compulsory vaccination. That's part of the story, right? But there's no dramatic fall of vaccination rates, but a, but a litigation crisis instead that leads to a supply crisis. So interesting contrast in how, these, how this plays out in the two countries. The 1990s, um, an important consequence of this period, besides the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, another is the, rise, sort of the institutionalization or the, or the emergence of or of, of people of, well, let's say, it's hard to find neutral language. I'll say vaccine skeptical groups. Dissatisfied Parents Together uh, comes rebranded as an, rebrands itself as the National Vaccine Information Center. And it, it's clearly, although there's a lot of different groups you can look at, they're not, they're not monolithic. Uh, I think it's fair to say that they saw, they certainly promoted themselves as a group that was not anti-vax, anti-vaccine, but rather promoting vaccine safety. Um, now, many in the vaccine community questioned that because they seemed to be so, to some, they seemed very reflexively opposed to virtually any new vaccine. And that's, that's why you get, why there's disagreement about that. But that's really how they promoted themselves. Um, and they certainly had fairly strong libertarian commitments to the principle that parents either way should be able to decide. Um, another interesting thing that they do, um, I think, uh, my just, uh, uh, it's sort of reshaping how we tell the history of how we tell the history of vaccine preventable diseases, or just disease and vaccines, because doctors, we, you know, frankly, doctors don't know much history, right? But one thing doctors will always say is, 
we have, you know, there are fewer infectious diseases. And if I walk into a random group of medical students, I ask them why, they'll always say vaccines. <clears throat> and that's a big oversimplification, okay. <clears throat> but that's the physician narrative, right? Well, these groups sort of started telling a different narrative. And what they started focusing on was new diseases or just diseases that are becoming more common. Autoimmune diseases, inflammatory bowel disease, diabetes, and linking that to new vaccines. As Elena showed you very nicely in that chart, the number of new vaccines was dramatically increasing, especially in the, in the in late 80s and 90s as we get vaccines for Hib, which is for meningitis, pneumococcal vaccine, uh, varicella or chickenpox. Um, so new vaccines, I think it's very clear to parents that your kid's going in the office and getting a lot more pokes in their thigh. <laughs> it's just really obvious. And it's also clear that newer diseases are appearing. I think it's really, so it's just a, it's a different way of, of framing the story. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think this is just kind of, our talks inevitably need to overlap, but I think there, you know, part of the background here is, I'm gonna focus on some factors from Elena's talk that I think especially sort of impact doctors. You know, the older style of medical paternalism is just, you know, it's fading away That's uh, by this time. And people, clearly parents, are expecting much more participation, empowerment. Uh, I am now, you know, I, I work in a world where my medical student will misdiagnose the parent has gotten because she went on the internet first. <clears throat> you know, it's just a different world. Um, so a shift in, it was just say, in the value of power and choice to parents. Um, increasing popularity of natural mothering, which is embracing a sort of a constellation of beliefs that do tend to run together, don't have to. Breastfeeding, attachment parenting, supplements, avoiding toxins, um, organic food. These things tend to track together to some extent. It's sort of a green philosophy of parenting, um, which is interesting to think about. Important point being, parents who decline vaccines are pro-immunity, but they would like to do it through natural immunity, as, as they would frame it. So that's another shift that's happening. And then consumerism, I think, is a really important one. Um, uh, and you know, our health system promotes consumerism, choice as much as possible in medicine at all levels. And there's obviously a tension with vaccines, um, where vaccines, you know, they do in the end work at the community level. They don't work in every individual. <clears throat> um, you have to get a certain level of coverage for a disease to, be, you know, to come under control or to be eradicated. And that coverage level in some cases might be quite high, like just about 95% for measles. So there's a tension between vaccines, which work at the community level, versus the ideal of much of medicine, which is more consumer choice. I just want to highlight that as one more complication. So, got to use the perfect storm analogy. We've got this cultural climate change that's going on. Uh, vaccine skepticism, which is being emerged through the currents that Elaine is talking about, but heightened through the DTP controversy. And now comes the big storm system that pushes the, the, uh, everything, uh, it creates the perfect storm, which is the autism controversies merge with, vaccine, with, vaccine, with the vaccine controversy. And um, I think this is really important to emphasize. It's not just a story of vaccine questioners and doctors, but the autism story is really important here. I've already mentioned that this narrative is being told of new diseases and, and more vaccines. Um, well, now we have the granddaddy of all the new diseases. I think it's interesting to think about autism in the 90s. 
like polio in the 50s. It's this disease that especially hits the middle classes. Uh, it doesn't really, but that's it's perceived here. Uh, it's everywhere. <laughs> Uh, people, uh, and it hasn't been diagnosed before, we could talk maybe in the panel about why is it really increasing, but it just feels like it really is on an intuitive level. Um, and the autism community has a story to tell, and it is a story of a community that has been badly wounded by medical experts. And I really want to put that out, because I think maybe there's some danger as I do my very rapid survey here of we kind of portray the you know, doctors who question vaccines as just mavericks, whatever. Well, sometimes mavericks are right. <laughs> and sometimes people are really injured by the true, uh, by the true experts. You, know, you might know who this person is. Anyone heard the name Bruno Betelheim? I, did I hear a couple of minors? Remember? Yes, sir? The, he is uh, shown in this picture. Bruno Betelheim is... Uh, it's a great, was, was probably the most famous popularizer of what was called the refrigerator mother theory of autism. He didn't invent it. That was actually the inventor of autism. <laughs> Leo Conner invented it, but he popularized it and promoted this theory that children become autistic because as an infant they have been damaged. Um, basically, they, they have suffered psychological damage at the hands of a cold, unfeeling, often educated mother. It is a horrible idea. It was a mainstream idea. Um, Betelheim was admired by all kinds of people in this time period. And uh, this is a picture of his school. Um, it comes from an article that reports what wonderful work he's doing. It shows the children he allowed to play on top of a, of a figure of a mother, acting out their aggression toward the mother. So the autism community, this is questioned not by the mainline researchers in autism in the 50s and 60s, but by, I think, a person you can describe as a maverick, a guy named Bern, uh, Bernie Bernard Remland, who is a psychologist in, in, at, uh, in San Diego, who had a child with autism. He recognized, had diagnosed the child himself. And he, being a bit compulsive, started reading all the literature and made himself an expert on autism in the 60s, wrote this book, which is really remembered as the first big rejection of the refrigerator mother theory. He is not a mainstream or powerful academic. He's pushing against this story. And this story just haunts the autism community. That's not the right word. It's a story that they remember, the autism community remembers. Um, and Bernie Remlin grows up. <laughs> he will continue to stay for the rest of his life. He, he, Remlin, putting out that picture, basically became, um, parents wrote in and he became sort of a founding figure for the Autism Society of North America. Of America. He remains engaged with, with people with autism throughout his life and he, the lesson he never wanted to forget was always listen to parents. Well, Remlin later on in his life uh, keeps that philosophy. He promotes, develops the Autism Research Institute in, in California. He will become a big promoter of, alter, you know, of special diets, elimination diets, vitamin supplements for autism. Um, and uh, that whole movement with the autism world really comes you know, out of a stream in which Rimlin features prominently. It's within that stream, and, and I'm going to call it, again, there's no good words for these, there's no objective language. I'm going to call it the alternative autism world. They would call it the biomedical autism world, people who believe that autism was a set of curable diseases, if you could just find the right diet or disease. That, that community 
um, Center around a community group called Defeat Autism Now, um, uh, coordinated with Rimlin. It's really out of that community that the idea of an autism epidemic emerges. Autism cases were rising in the 1990s pretty dramatically. Most mainstream researchers thought the rise was because the definition had expanded and because they were finding cases earlier. This group said, no, it's a real rise. So this group promotes the idea of an autism epidemic and the idea, if you have an epidemic, what's the implication? There's something causing it, something environmental. And they have a lot of interest in the GI tract. Um, they're doing a lot of diets. So a huge, great sense of expectation. I think Remlin, at least Remlin considers himself the first person to use the phrase uh, autism epidemic. Um, uh, <clears throat> he proposes that idea, an environmental trigger, and now comes the spark. A British uh, gastroenterologist named Andrew Wakefield, who'd been working on GI disease and became interested, became uh, involved in this, in this whole con controversy somewhat through the back door. Andrew Wakefield is remembered uh, for publishing a case series in 1998, 12 children who had GI symptoms, enterocolitis, followed by uh, autistic regression. Eight of these had had the MMR vaccine. Um, and he, he promotes a theory that MMR vaccine can cause an autistic regression syndrome afterwards. Uh, uh, he announces this at a press conference, and uh, it's, quickly, it's quickly picked up by the, by the press, and it sets off in some ways, a repeat of what happened in 1974. Um, the percentage of children receiving MMR fell pretty dramatically, um, and, um, not as low as in, in, in the 70s with DTP, but, it, but enough that the, the, the herd immunity threshold was broken and measles outbreaks took place again. <clears throat> um, journalists wrote, I think it's been estimated some 1,500 articles. There's a British documentary on, on Wakefield, and in America, um, congressional hearings began to be featured, you know, take place on what's happening. Um, a second controversy arose at the same time. I am going so fast here. This is what Elena has mentioned, the ethylmercury or thimerosal controversy. Thimerosal was a preservative that really had been used in vaccines since the 30s um, to prevent infections that occurred with multiple dose vaccines. No one, I, I don't think I knew it contained mercury. Most doctors didn't. Um, and it had very little, to be fair. Um, but as the number of vaccines increased in the, 19, in the 1990s, the exposure rose. And the FDA did an analysis in 1999, I'm, I'm kind of compressing a more complicated story, that showed that babies could get as much as 187 micrograms in the first six months. It was unclear whether that was, a, a, whether that was harmful because there were different thresholds, but it did exceed the EPA's threshold. And that led the American Academy of Pediatrics and CCC to, to issue a joint statement calling for the removal of thimerosal from vaccines and a temporary suspension of the hepatitis B vaccine to kind of put one vaccine later. This decision has become so controversial and divisive in the medical community. And, uh, I guess you can ask me later what I think about it. Um, but I can tell you there are people, there are many people who think this, that basically it was this announcement that set off the controversy. Um, certainly, um, they, AEP and uh, CDC try to make clear this was a precautionary measure. There was really no clear, no definite evidence that, uh, that uh, 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 what I call evidence of harm. And yet, 
you know, the idea that small amounts of mercury could cause injury to the, certain, to the nervous system is a plausible idea. Um, well, very rapid response to this. Um, and you can read in various sources just how parents of, from the autism community read, you know, heard this study and started contacting each other and forming organizations, Safe Minds and others as well. They sometimes like to call themselves the Mercury Moms. And they seize mercury as another, along with MMR, as another explanation of the autism epidemic. Um, redirected the congressional hearings on MMR to take thimerosal into account as well. So now we have two big uh, uh, vaccine controversies. Um, in the United States, uh, the vaccine court is kind of hitting, getting the brunt of a lot of this. They got over 5,000 claims of vaccine-induced autism over these years. Whole, the public health community responds pretty quickly, trying to do large epidemiologic studies, um, all of which fail to, to uh, substantiate any, any linkage. Expert panels um, basically make pronouncements. Again, no proof of causation, but it's very hard to, to calm these expectations down. Um, uh, essentially, we had, a, in the end, all the, the vaccine courts set up a, a, a set of, of two giant, what we call omnibus um, autism proceedings, where again, they try to just take, use the courts to settle, kind of what the British did with DTP, whether or not evidence supported a link between either MMR and autism or thimerosal. They concluded, looking at cases as well as literature, that there was no linkage. So experts would say this is a non-issue. Um, um, the story goes in a different direction in England. Wakefield himself gets exposed uh, for, in the paper. People, it, doctors often like to say it's the press doing all of this. The press plays a complicated role with this. In this case, the press brought Wakefield down, as well as giving publicity to his earlier work. The charges are that five of the eight children that, he, that were in that paper in The Lancet had been referred by an anti-vaccine uh, MMR litigator, and Wakefield had not disclosed this. He had been given a large sum of money by, by Barr, which he, he did not disclose. Um, he never obtained approval of the Ethics, Ethical Practices Committee. And there really were some pretty significant irregularities. He had been promoting as the solution to this, separating measles vaccines from mumps and rubella, and he was seeking a patent for a new measles vaccine at the same time. So Wakefield basically got debarred in England. Um, all of his co-authors retracted the paper's uh, interpretation. Wakefield's license was revoked, and he came to Texas, where he actually runs a... <laughs> I've had a patient who's seen him, but... So I've heard Wakefield speak. Um, he came to our community, and I was really fascinated because you, you can... I've told the story this way, um, but among a group of patients with autism who heard him, he was a martyr. You know, they still felt that he was being a maverick who was criticized, it was basically crucified for his beliefs. So I'm just saying it's not, you know, information doesn't settle this. <laughs> you know, um, so the aftermath of all this, um, and I, I already, I'm not sure I like the, the, the title of this. So I, that, the title of this slide is the one that a good, that a, a physician would use, <laughs> celebrity anti-vaxxers. And I would say, of all the story I've told you, if I just walked in a group of, of MDs, they would just say, Jenny McCarthy, what else do you need to know? <laughs> And you know this this caricature of just you know, somebody who does. I, I think I'm going to say I, I don't feel her critiques don't necessarily feel 
that thoughtful. Uh, in a way that I would say that the leader of DPT, like Barbara Lowe Fisher, I think her critiques are thoughtful. Um, she is very, they are um, Jim Carrey and the like. So that's, that's kind of one public face. Um, Barbara Lowe Fisher, uh, the, the, the head of, of, of the National Vaccine Information Center, has still remained very much alive in more recent, uh, involved in more recent years. I just put her picture up on an interview with Fox, uh, with Fox and Friends. So illustrating here the interesting, I mean, this just gets complicated, right? Is this, does resistance come from the left, the right? You know, populism is the theme that connects a lot of this, I think. Um, I don't know if some fans of Fox News were watching this or not. Um, and here's another thing that I think has made really life interesting for all of us, uh, the vaccine spacing option. As these controversies, you know, as so much has kind of come out against the MMR and thimerosal controversy in particular, many people still have an intuition. And the basic intuition is that there are just so many vaccines and there's so many additives in them. There's got to be something about them. So, you know, you can try to have long conversations about that. Or Dr. Sears's approach in his book is to say, let's just do kind of a compromise. Let's kind of space them out. And pediatricians get really upset about that because vaccines do affect your early childhood. But I can feel from a parent's standpoint how this can seem, just feel reasonable. Um, again, choice is an important value, right, in medicine. And it feels like, like choice. Dr. Sears does not have um, the same vernacular that a Jenny McCarthy might. Just, it speaks a different language, one of, that I think feels reassuring to parents, and I, I, can, I can appreciate that, even though I do disagree with him. Um, so, my three points. Um, <clears throat> first, take note for this, I'm gonna say that vaccine hesitancy, I want you to think about, like autism, as a spectrum. Um, so, I suspect we have a lot of different points of view in this room, well, I don't really know, it'll be interesting to see, I guess I'll know in a few minutes. Um, but uh, there are, I, I think among physicians, uh, there's a caricature of all people opposing vaccine as being very extreme, just, just kind of irrational extreme. Um, I think there are a few people who are, you could lump together into that kind of caricature, but there's a lot of more people who I think are just worried. <laughs> and if you go on the internet, you can't help but be. And I think they deeply want to make responsible choice according to their values. Uh, Elena's presentation, I think, gives you a sense of where those values might come from. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all there. Those values, I think, are quite individual. Um, alluded to a couple of them right here. I don't think just one kind of information package addresses all that. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. Number two, I don't think good science is enough. So educated people who question vaccines tend to judge good science. It, maybe I'm making an assertion here, but it feels to me they often judge good science not so much in methodology than the trustworthiness of the scientists, of the who, people who produce the science. Methodology statistics, I mean, it hurts my brain to figure it out, you know? And there really is a sense that it could be very hard to interpret. As an example, I just quickly threw out how there were whooping cough epidemics in, in England, late 70s. Turns out, statistically, it was really hard to figure that out. There was a huge rise of cases, but not of deaths. What do you do with that? <laughs> 
statistics have to be interpreted. That's just sort of a kind of easy grasp example. I can kind of get that. I think there's a logic to people who, who reject, who have questions about vaccines. And the logic often has to do with judging expert committees and studies according to whether or not the authors have connections to government or industry. Physicians feel that disclosure takes care of that. I don't think in that community they do. Um, and uh, that is part of why I didn't testify for Lilly. Um, and third, I think this is my final, and what I think is a very important point, it's, it's about trust. And in this case, of your doctor. <clears throat> and I think having a statement, ending this with a statement about your doctor, I don't know, in this day and age, it probably feels kind of a, a bit incongruous, right? We're at an age where patients are more empowered. We, we make our, um, but autonomy is, is vineyard. But it feels to me that a big part of this history is that doctors' attitudes and the relationship with patients, I think, still often play a critical role in decisions about whether or not to vaccinate people's children. Um, and I think relationship is very important there. Um, I, when somebody comes into my office and is questioning vaccines, I want to know what story they've had. <laughs> um, what has led them to question vaccines? Um, I don't think it's that uncommon to hear stories of being injured by the medical community in some way. <clears throat> and uh, I'd like to hear those stories and talk about them. At least I think that's a good starting point. <clears throat> Lots of questions here. So I, you know, as I was thinking of this talk and, and, and with respect to the others we're doing here, you're doing climate change and, and uh, evolution, I think. You know, the third thing, something different about this one is you know, you don't, um, people, parents dealing with this issue, um, you know, they kind of have to see a doctor, um, you know, every two months or so. So this opportunity for a direct one-on-one -on -one conversation. You don't usually t talk to an evolutionary scientist or a climate change scientist every two months. So that's an interesting difference just to think about. Um, but lots of questions remain about that. Um, there's a big debate among pediatricians. It's better to talk to parents using directive language, I recommend, or your child needs, or more decision-sharing language. We could talk about that more later on. How realistic is it to have a meaningful conversation in a 10 to 15-minute office visit? I have some pretty interesting conversations with people, but they get me behind. Other people get mad. <clears throat> Are we moving away from close relationships between families and individual practitioners? Uh, I think that's a really big issue. Um, we talk more and more about primary care as medical homes. You have a relationship with a place, but not with people. I think that's just really interesting to think about. Does this kind of, to me, I think relationship matters. I think it really does. Oh, and then is it ever ethical to dismiss families who persist in not vaccinating their children? Um, and uh, I don't do that. Uh, I think that's because I believe relationship is so important. But that's a, that's a, these questions are all out there. So, <clears throat> thank you very much. Um, and I think so. I think at this point we're going to all the panelists are going to come forward. Um, let's let me start this question with the one one of those that you posed at at the very end, uh, uh, Jeff, and that is which is more effective if you are in favor of vaccination? Uh, full information and discussion with the parent or simply saying it's time for the kid to have the DPT? I think there's some research on that. There is research on it. Um, 
And the research would indicate that directive approaches, which is when you say, I need your, think your kid needs the shot, um, are more likely to be met with um, acceptance. Um, there's also research, another study would say that there's less happiness with that. Um, <laughs> right, there's more likely higher acceptance, but less patient satisfaction. I'm afraid that I think that research has to be broken down by the particular patient. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think some, I, I guess I know some people work in a practice where it seems like they, they tell me their patients just say, what shots do I need, doc? Um, that's not true of my practice. And I don't think the directive approach, I, I would, I, I begin with the direct, I, I begin by recommending, but I then ask. Okay, I don't want to monopolize the questioning. I'd like to go to the audience, but I hope someone will ask uh, let me put it that way. <laughs> what should be done uh, in the wake of the, what would be the best uh, course to follow in the wake of this uh, measles epidemic on the, court, on the uh, boundary between uh, Oregon and Washington? But go ahead, sir. Well, thank you for three excellent talks. Uh, I want to ask the last speaker in particular with reference to autism. The current concern, I would say, in s certain parts of the scientific community is that the the total dose of aluminum over those 17 uh, vaccinations may be excessive for a, an 18 to 24 month old child given their small size and the quantity of aluminum. Aluminum is, is used as an adjuvant in the vaccines, unlike thimerosal, which was just a preservative. Well, um, I should preface it by saying that I, I really did I, sweat, I sweated during the thimerosal thing, okay? I, I think that was a fair question of harm. I don't feel that way about aluminum. Um, the, um, the amount of aluminum, I do not believe there's a consensus among scientists that the amounts of aluminum in vaccines represent a danger. There's a lot of aluminum in the environment. Aluminum in high doses is a danger, right? That's clearly the case. The amount of exposure you get through all the vaccines together compared to um, other sources of aluminum is, is really small. You can't even see, you can't document increases in aluminum in babies. That's not a consensus that aluminum. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say it was a consensus of the majority. It's, it, the majority don't think it's a problem, but there's a minority that does believe that. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, what differs from when you eat aluminum, it, it, it may not get absorbed. It also goes through the liver first. So you have some protection as opposed to an injection in an infant mm -hmm. where they have you know, relatively little defense against that. Mm -hmm. And the other, the other thing is it, it is a known adjuvant. It's used as an adjuvant. So, it, so the question of can it induce autoimmunity? I think I'd like to step in and, and talk to that for a moment. Um, one thing that you mentioned, Jeff, is that vaccine skepticism is on a spectrum, just as it is with um, which just says autism is, as you noted. And I think it's important to know that long before vaccine skeptics were worried about mercury, they were actually worried about aluminum, they were worried about glycerin. In fact, they were pulling out the chemical ingredients of vaccines. You know, in 1802, people were worried about the biological ingredients of vaccines. 200 years later, they were worried about the chemical ingredients of vaccines. And by focusing on mercury and autism, I think we miss the full set of concerns that 
that people who are vaccine skeptical have and, and risk actually missing opportunities to communicate well and really understand um, where some of the worries are coming from. So I think it's, it's important to hear questions like that and remember that when we're up here talking about trust in vaccines, we're distilling a really complicated set of issues into just a few talking points. Uh, this is a bit of a different slant on it. I think a lot of the problem with parents of young kids these days is that they don't have any or very little personal experience of having the diseases themselves so that they don't have the personal knowledge of how bad you can feel if you get these things, what the risks are, and they equate the perceived risks of the aftermath of vaccines with the diseases themselves. And I think that and anybody who's taken stats you know, would realize you know, that the correlation does not prove causation. That's another factor that the general public wouldn't necessarily know. But I'm, I personally had measles, mumps, chicken pox, you know, everything else. <laughs> and I also had all the polio shots in the, in the known universe. But I know from personal experience what it's like to have the standard childhood stuff. I knew people who had had polio and they suffered from the aftermath. But the, the other face of it is that current medical students also don't have any personal experience with the diseases. And I'm wondering if there's a way to add to the curriculum of medical schools, um, nursing schools, so nurse practitioners, uh, physician's assistants, all those people have some kind of experience or at least specialized statistical training in, yes, your chances of getting your child developing autism are one in whatever the percentage is. I'm sure it's extremely low. Mm -hmm. and, but your chances of your child developing measles without vaccines, unless the herd, vac the herd immunity is effective, is, you know, the chances are one in whatever, which I'm assuming would be a much higher number. And the chances of having a bad reaction or even, you haven't mentioned vaccines for adults, but um, there's also the phenomenon of lots of people these days are developing shingles because of that's, um, you know, a consequence of childhood diseases. So that uh, just that there should be more medical knowledge for the students who don't have their, their own personal experience so that they can be a more effective booster of saying you, you really don't want your kids to have these, any of these diseases. So I, we, we, I think I agree with your general point. Um, and if you're gonna ask me, you know, as we talk about, as I have my conversations with families about, autism, you know, about vaccines, and I'm gonna start by asking them their concerns. But I, I am going to, to be talking about vaccine preventable diseases. Um, I, because I'm kind of old fart gray hair, I have some advantages where I've actually seen the changes myself too, and particularly meningitis, the, the really dramatic decline of meningitis from the Hib vaccine 
when I was an intern, I can't believe I'm saying this, when I was an intern, you know, there was always a child in the ICU with meningitis, and now the residents, they don't know how to do a lumbar puncture because they see so little. That's a very dramatic personal change. And I do sessions with medical students, you know, on this as well. I will say, here's the interesting thing, there's a, there's kind of a, there's a struggle over defining what diseases are trivial and what's severe. And I think one of the hard things that also needs to be understood is how a lot of these diseases, there's a common presentation that's uncomfortable but not that bad, and then there's complications that really are bad. Even polio virus, you know, it can't be just an enterovirus that just gives you a bad fever, but the complications are the paralysis. Polio, though, gets named after the people have the complications. Um, contrast that with measles, where we refer to the disease, but only a subset get the complications. That's still a big subset, 20%, you know, will get pneumonias, as an example. Um, so different sides can say, no, I think this is mainly a benign disease, whereas I think the doctors tend to focus on the complications, which we would still feel when lots of people get the disease, they add up. Um, that'd be true for chickenpox. Mumps is the main one I would probably say, yeah, that one probably isn't really very severe. And it did tag along measles and rubella. But the other ones, I think the complications add up enough that they are worth vaccinating against. This really complicates the question of whether it matters that parents today remember or don't remember or experienced or didn't experience these diseases. I mean, I'm of the generation where parents my age remember having the chicken pox. And many say, it was fine. Why does my child need a vaccine? But they get the vaccine because they can. And I, in my research, found parents saying the very same things of measles and mumps. They experienced them and said, I had it too. Do we really need this? Okay, we'll get it. But that question is there alongside this present That's, that's survivor virus, bias. It sure is. <laughs> it sure is. Some, some, um, it's, uh, we had time for just one more question now. Yeah, there was a recent report on TV, and I, I thought it was on 60 Minutes, may not have been, I think it was just a couple days ago, that, that there are doctors in certain states where um, vaccinations are required in order for the kids to attend school. Doctors are offering to provide medical exemptions, which is a requirement of the states. And I was wondering if any of you could comment about this. They're actually, the doctors are actually out there in some cases promoting that they are offering the opportunity to get these exemptions sure. for a reasonable price. Did you read it? Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a not surprising development in the wake of um, California passing a far stricter vaccine law than any other state has except for West Virginia and Mississippi. Uh, California, up until 2016, offered exemptions on the basis of personal beliefs in addition to medical exemptions and then did away with the personal belief exemption which covered religious exemptions. What this means is that the only way to be exempt from school vaccine requirements in that state as in West Virginia and Mississippi, two states that don't normally keep company with California ideologically, um, is to get a medical exemption, and that means finding a doctor who will sign one, and that means that a market has popped up for doctors to do that, and I think that we can expect that to happen if other states, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in Oregon and Washington to come to the question that you wanted to ask, if Oregon and Washington respond to this outbreak the way that California did, I guarantee 
I'm not supposed to guarantee things about the future. I'm a historian. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to predict that we can expect this to happen there as well. I wish we had more time, but I think we have to call it quits um, and, and, uh, and, and end this. And please thank all three of our wonderful presenters. Thank you for listening, and please visit chstm.org slash vaccines to continue the conversation.